Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stephanie. I, I can't follow that. Uh, Matthew is just too cute. And thank you, Luciana. I've got that. That's what I'm coming away with. I love it. Pray with me, if you would. Oh, blessed are you, God of all creation. You spoke in the beginning, and all things came to be. You spoke, and your word came to live with us, full of grace and truth. Bless this gathering where we would hear your voice. Bless this gathering where we would hear your story. As we listen, may our ears be attuned to you. As your word is spoken, may you speak to us. May all we hear lead us to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I've had a, a number of conversations really over the past year, but they've really picked up over the past several months, uh, especially with other pastors and church leaders asking, what is the future of the church in a post-pandemic world? A lot of us are getting vaccines, and so things feel like they're starting to inch back toward normal, and we've heard the phrase new normal more times than we can count, and um, what does the future look like for the church, both the global church, all the all the Christians, the six billion Christian, or six billion, the one billion Christians or so that we know of in the world, but even the local church, this church, Middle Street, what, what does the future look like for us? It's helped me in those conversations to see that in order to listen more carefully to where God is leading us to go and who God is calling us to be, we really need to do some, some work to envision what does God want the church to be? How does God himself see and understand the church? That better color, how we see.
see and understand the church. So we're spending some time this spring thinking about the church. Now here's the interesting thing. If you, if you read your Bible, especially in your New Testament, the word church appears quite a bit, but it doesn't appear in a... Um, like a logical or a didactic sense very often. In other words, the, the authors of the Bible and especially the authors of the New Testament don't spend a lot of time trying to define the church. They don't try to examine it and explain the church or explain what it is. They don't try to dissect it, which is a good thing. I heard just this week that in order to dissect something, you have to kill it first. So we're not trying to dissect the church this spring. But instead, what you see is the biblical authors give these, these paintings or these illustrations. Um, if, I, if I were to go to the, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and, and I see a painting, a Monet or a Matisse that I just love, and I come back and I try to explain it to you, I, it's not going to work, right? Even if I'm really good with words, it's just not going to work. At some point, you've got to go to the MFA yourself and see the painting for yourself. The authors of Scripture and of the New Testament don't so much try to define or explain the church as they try to paint it. They paint a picture of it. So we're taking five weeks this spring, post-Easter, and we're looking at some of those different paintings and tapestries or poems, just anything that we can to, to get a fuller understanding of what does God envision for his church, specifically what does God envision for us? in a post-pandemic world. Last week, uh, Shea Fitzgibbons, un, un, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he opened the, the image of a shepherd and his sheep to us. We saw that, that God is the good shepherd and we're his flock. The good shepherd knows his sheep. This is out of John 10. And the sheep know the shepherd's voice, which means they're listening for the shepherd's voice. And when the sheep go off astray on their own, they often end up in trouble. And yet even when they they do, Shea showed us how the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, which is astonishing that a shepherd would give up his life for a sheep. And the sheep follow the shepherd wherever he goes. This morning we're going to explore a different image, which is one of a temple. And Luciana did a great job teeing us up. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 3, and and I asked Stephanie to read a broader chunk because it gives us some context. I'm really going to focus in on just two verses right in the middle, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? And then he continues with a warning, and we'll address it too. If anyone, this is verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him. And our ears perked up. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. We're going to look and try to examine from a couple of different perspectives this image of a temple. And our structure this morning is really simple. It's probably one of the simplest structures I've ever preached. What the temple was and what the temple is. There you have it. That's where we're going. What it was, what it is. Simple. First, let's look at what the temple was. Because in order to understand what Paul means when he says, you are the temple, we have to figure out what does he mean? And what would somebody listening 2,000 years ago have, have heard? What associations would they have made? 
The simple definition, and we're going to keep coming back to this over and over again, is this. The temple, God's temple, is where God dwells with his people, and specifically where God's spirit and God's glory dwell with his people. So if you're looking for kind of, if if you're like me and you're pretty logical and you like to put things in buckets and categories and have things well organized, think of the temple as twofold. One, it's where God's spirit and God's glory are, where they live among his people. And the second flows out of that. The second is this, which means if you want to meet God, you have to go to the temple. It's where God is, and therefore, if you want to meet God, that's where you go. Now, a lot of this image comes from the Old Testament, and it comes specifically from the first Jewish temple, which was built in Jerusalem. King Solomon, King David's son, built the temple. We read that when it was dedicated, and this is 1 Kings 8, it says a cloud filled the temple of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament especially, also new, but especially Old Testament, when you see a cloud, you start to think God. Sometimes it's actually also uh, smoke. You know, smoke and cloud, they look kind of similar. Think uh, when God is leading the Israelites through the wilderness after they had escaped from Egypt, how did he do it? They followed a cloud, right? Uh, and actually right before that, when they're escaping and, and God is fighting for the, Egypt, for the Israelites, it says in Exodus 14, how does he confuse the Egyptians so they can't kill or slaughter the Israelites? A cloud envelops them. So when you see a cloud, you think God. I made it like three words into that verse. First uh, Kings 8, a cloud filled the temple of the Lord after it was built, and the priests could not perform their service Because of the cloud. Why? For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, we're going to spend a little bit of time with the temple itself, the structure. And this is difficult for a number of reasons. One, because none of us has ever seen it. We do have a good description, and and in the Old Testament, uh, we see a description of exactly how God wanted the temple to be built. But it's also difficult to describe because it's just... It's so over the top, I don't think any of us can really imagine it. But let's try. Here are just some of the descriptions that we see from God's instructions for how to build the temple. Almost every surface is overlaid with gold. Underneath those gold overlays are some of the finest wood carvings you can imagine, made from the finest wood that you can possibly source, made by the absolute best craftsmen of the day. There are curtains that surround the whole thing, and they're something like 30 feet tall, just lush, vivid, beautiful colors. I found one estimate. Now, this isn't an estimate for the price of the whole temple. Uh, Somebody just counted up. So in in, um, 1 Kings, when it describes the building of the temple, it tells you how much gold and silver was used. And they just took that, and they multiplied it by the price of gold or silver today, and they found this. The price of the gold and silver alone in the Jerusalem temple amounts to $200 billion. That's with a B. And that's just the gold and silver. That doesn't account for wood. That doesn't account for curtains and fabric and tapestries. It certainly doesn't take into account labor costs. We're looking at a hundreds of billions of dollars structure. That's no joke. The, um, the new One World Trade Center, where the Twin Towers used to stand, was finished like 10, 10 years ago or so now, something like that. That cost $4 billion to build. 
It's about three and a half million square feet. So that gives you, this is just back of the envelope, a, a square foot price of about $1,100 per square foot. Pretty expensive. The new Apple headquarters, you know, they make your iPhone. The new Apple headquarters uh, cost $5 billion to build. Now, that is 2.8 million square feet. So it's a higher price tag, smaller um, building, which means there's more. So that, uh, the Apple building, almost $1,800 per square foot. The temple in Jerusalem was 2,700 square feet. 2,700 if you divide 200 billion by 2700, you know what you get? You get a square foot cost of 79.5 million dollars per square foot. Can you imagine visually what it looked and that's just the gold and silver. <laughs> Can you imagine what it would have been like to walk into that? There's just, like, we, we can't. We, there's no framework for understanding how, ma- do you get the picture? Like, the whole point when you walked into the temple was to leave you speechless, utterly speechless. Every architectural detail, every wood carving, every piece of furniture, every piece of fabric, every ounce of gold, every everything, every proportion was made to leave you in shock and awe. And the shock and awe that you felt at the temple was just a shadow of the shock and awe that God wanted you to feel at himself. That's the point. You walk into the temple and it's like you just it hits you in your chest and you realize this is just a drop in the bucket compared to the God whom I came here to worship. You don't worship the temple, of course. That's idolatry. But you worship the God to whom the temple points. This was a big deal. And God himself dwelt there. There were, there were outer courts, and then there was the sanctuary, and then there was this little room on the inside called the Holy of Holies, and God's spirit dwelt there, which made for an incredible tragedy when it stopped dwelling there. The temple was probably built sometime around 9 or 800 BC. Those are our best estimates. And over the next several hundred years, two, three hundred years, the Israelites turned from God and walked away from God again and again and again. And he kept having mercy and having mercy, and they walked away, and he had mercy, and they walked away, and he had mercy until this, Ezekiel 10. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold, the door of the temple. And the cloud filled the temple, no longer just the Holy of Holies, but the whole temple. And the court, the outer area, was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. And then if you skip down to Ezekiel 10, verse 18, it says this, And then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. It stopped above the cherubim. There are these golden carved angels. And while I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. What's that like? Uh, And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of Israel was above them. You see what's going on? God has left the building, literally. This this is maybe the most... maybe the most devastating moment in Israel's history. 
And then it got worse. Because shortly after that, in 586 BC, and we know this from various historians, ancient historians, in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar led the Babylonian army, and they turned that $200 billion plus dollar building into rubble, laid waste. Now, for a Jew, you can imagine this is a major identity crisis. God left his house. Has he left us? Foreigners have come in and devastated God's home, is there a chance of God ever even returning to us? Well, there's a chance because 100 years later, God raises up another leader named Ezra and he rallies a bunch of Israelites and they rebuild the temple. It's not quite as glorious, not even close to as glorious or fancy, but they rebuild the temple. And here's what's amazing. They rebuild God's house, the place where God's spirit and God's glory happens or dwells. And you know what happens? Nothing. Silence. They build God's house again, and God doesn't come back. When you get to the time of Jesus, the Jews have been waiting over 500 years for for the temple to return to its former glory. And 500 years later, Paul writes this. Don't you know, Christians, you are God's temple. There's one pair of commentators I I follow. I like them. Uh, One of them was actually one of my professors in seminary, and he says, Paul is audacious and ludicrous in this verse. (laughs) I mean, it goes beyond the simple question, how can a people be a temple? And that's a fair question, too. But more, more poignantly, if you know anything about the Christians in Corinth, Corinth is a city in Greece, in ancient Greece, and Paul is writing a letter to the Christians in Corinth. How can these people be a temple. For starters, the Corinthian Christians are gent- they're not even Jews. They're Gentiles. The temple was an explicitly Jewish building. How can the temple now be Gentiles? And secondly, if you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that, I mean, if you saw the Corinthian Christians in action, you might well wonder whether they were Christians at all. When they observed the Lord's Supper, we know that they, they weren't Baptists, so they drank wine. When they observed the Lord's Supper, um, they drank so much wine that they got raging drunk in the middle of the Lord's Supper. Probably connected to that, they excluded the poor from their worship services. They literally did not let poor people into church. Paul says at one point that they, pract- they had certain sexual practices that even the pagans don't put up with. And Paul says, you, you are God's temple. What? You see what Paul's saying here? The temple. Think Old Testament temple here. That place of unspeakable beauty and glory, the place where God's glory and spirit dwell, the place where you go to meet God is no longer a place at all. It's no longer a building, it's, it's a people. It's the church. You, we, are God's temple. 
Now, English grammar is not quite as precise as Greek grammar, and so this is lost in the English, but let me translate, and I have an advantage here because I'm a southerner. Every pronoun here is plural in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, and 17. Let me translate it literally for you. Don't y'all know that y'all are God's temple and God's spirit lives in y'all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and y'all are God's temple. Two short verses, two sentences, four pronouns, all plural. What Paul is saying here is not that you individually are God's temple. He will make that implication later in 1 Corinthians 6. So it's not wrong to understand that that's that's part of the reality of the temple. But here he's saying, y'all, all all y'all, if you're a good southerner, we, all of us, are the temple. The gathered, the collective, the group is the temple of God. When he says the church is the temple, he's not talking about the building. He's not talking about the organization, right? The, 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 the organization that's structured and governed by a set of bylaws and that has policies and procedures. That's not what he means. He also doesn't mean an event. I went to church yesterday. He doesn't mean what happens in this room Sunday at 10 a.m. It's the people. It's the relationships. You know, what, you know what the church really is? This is abstract again. You, the, the church is like the air in this room that is between us. And the relationships that connect me to you and you to me, like you can't see it. You can't see your relationship, right? But that, those relationships, that's the church. That's the temple. That's where God's spirit and glory dwell. Which means what? It means a couple of things. One, remember those $200 billion worth of gold and silver? It's got nothing on us. Well, Chris, it doesn't feel that way. I'm just telling you what Paul's saying. <laughs> don't y'all know that y'all, don't we know that we are God's temple? Let me ask you this. What better, because, okay, what's the temple? Let's go back to this. What is the temple? The temple is where the spirit and glory of God dwell with his people. What better reflects the spirit and glory of God? $200 billion worth of gold and silver or a gentle and lowly heart? Hmm? What better reflects the spirit and glory of God? Fancy wooden carvings, or a heart that is quick to forgive. You know, Jesus famously keys in on this in Matthew 18. It's a very famous verse. I'm sure you've heard it. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. What's he getting at? That there's connections, that it matters. And Peter knows this is what Jesus gets at because right after that, the very next verse, what does Peter ask Jesus? Okay, Lord, how many times then shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven? How does Jesus respond? Do you remember? The Greek is a little bit vague. Either Jesus says 77 or he says 70 times 7. The point is clear. You lose count before you make it. You got to start all over again. 
The Spirit of God is present among us, which means that it transforms our relationships with each other. See, when you see that that's what the temple is, that it's the church, it's the relationships among us, it transforms our relationships with each other. It inevitably does. You can't see the temple of God as the church and not be transformed in your relationships with one another. You can't understand and realize and savor the fact that we are God's temple and then go and act destructively towards God's temple. How can we act in destructive or hurtful ways towards each other when we are where God's spirit dwells? Whether that's church meetings, whether that's worship services, so many of you serve at at the community lunch or at the Salvation Army soup kitchen or other places, whether it's a small group, whether you're talking on the phone or texting with one another, you see like everything we say and don't say to each other and about each other is a reflection of God's spirit and glory. In other words, what God is challenging us to do here through Paul is to ask, how how am I treating God's temple? How am I treating God's temple? This is what Paul uh, is getting at in the next verse, verse 17. This is the hard verse. If anyone, you thought the first one was hard. (laughs) If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. And y'all are that temple. Now remember, Paul's writing to Christians. He's not not worried about people from outside the church destroying the church. He's worried about people inside the church destroying the church. He's worried about the church destroying itself. It's very poignant. And remember, if if he's saying y'all are God's temple, not you personally, but you, the collective, the group, then he's not talking about just the individual things that you do, but but those destructive relational patterns, the, the gossip, the slander, the casting people's reputation into question, whether it's direct or subtle, it doesn't matter. When we do or say anything divisive, Anything that tears someone down instead of building them up, whether to them or about them. Paul says we're really no different than King Nebuchadnezzar who turned that $200 billion building into rubble. If the temple is where God's spirit and God's glory dwell, how does that color everything we do together? That's what what God is asking Everything. Sunday, 10 a.m., temple. The Zoom book club that meets Wednesday nights, I love it. I'm not a part of it, but I love knowing that it's there. Temple. Monday morning work crew, temple. The church meeting that you're going to this week, temple. God's spirit and glory are there. Will we reflect it? Now, there's one big question remaining. How can Paul possibly make this leap? I don't know if you've asked yourself that. I kind of hope you have. 
Like, wait a minute, Chris. Okay, big Old Testament temple. Paul says you're the temple. How in the world can that be? He doesn't explain it at all. How do you get from A to point B? In, in John 2, and we know this from the other Gospels as well, it's later in those, but in John 2, Jesus goes on this little rampage in the, in the temple, the actual temple in, in Jerusalem. And he, he flips tables and he drives merchants out with a whip and he says, you've made my, my father's house a den of thieves and you're probably familiar with that. You can read it afterwards if you want. Here's what it says, John 2, 18. Then the Jews asked Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Who are you? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Huh. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And that was the baby version. It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? And I love it. John, John does this a lot. John, like, explains what's going on. He has this note. But the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead... So now he jumps like way ahead. His disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. You've got the Old Testament temple. You've got the church as a temple. There is a third temple in the middle, so to speak. More properly, we would probably call it the second temple. It's the temple that bridges the gap between the building and the people. It's the person. Jesus, the Messiah, is the temple He said it himself. Let me ask you again, what is the temple? It is where God's spirit and glory dwell among his people. Who is Jesus if not the man through whom God's spirit and glory dwell among his people? God with skin on, as our friend Will Goff likes to say. And just as the first temple, the, the, the $200 billion one, was destroyed because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, the second temple was destroyed because of our unfaithfulness to God. Only when the first was destroyed, it wasn't God himself. It was a symbol of God. It pointed to God. When the second temple was destroyed, God himself was destroyed. And then just as the first temple was rebuilt as an act of grace, the second temple was rebuilt, resurrected, raised from the dead as an act of grace with one very, very important difference. Remember when the first temple was rebuilt, 5th century BC, and the Spirit of God didn't come back? When the second temple, Jesus was raised from the dead. Not only did the Spirit come back, but it spilled out into all believers and into the church. That's how you get from the first temple to the second. Because God himself, the temple himself, dwelt among us. Because no longer do you have to go to the temple to meet God. God himself came to you to meet you. When the second temple was rebuilt and Jesus was raised from the dead, he breathed his spirit on us at Pentecost, excuse me, at Pentecost, 
and guaranteed that his spirit would never again leave the temple because y'all are, that we are the temple. And where two or three are gathered, there I am, Jesus says. How, how shall we then live? What is the temple? I mean, y'all are the temple. We are the temple. What is the temple? It is where God's spirit and God's glory dwell, and it is the place where the world comes to meet God. That's what the church is. Don't you know that you yourselves, that y'all are God's temple and God's spirit lives in y'all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred. And you, y'all, are that temple. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Just like the temple itself was just a taste of your glory, the, the thought of the temple and the image, and as we, as we turn it over and, and try to savor it and try to taste the different flavors that are there, I mean, even, even as rich as it is, it's just a taste of you. Oh, Lord, be present with us today and forever. Not in a trite way, not because we just said a prayer and, and we invited God to be a part of this or that gathering, but no, because every, every fiber of us loves every fiber of one another. Would our interactions with each other reflect the glory of God, the glory of the Son, the glory of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, transform us. Mold us more and more into what you have already made us. We ask these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our true temple. Amen.